Hey friends, good morning. Let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22 here. Uh, if we had not had a chance to meet, my name is Kenson, serve as the pastor of our Bridgeport Church. Glad to be with you all this morning. And just like Rafe, I cannot encourage enough to join us for our prayer time. Um, sometimes too, like, you know, I might be on the road, I might be on my way to a meeting. Sometimes I just turn it on just to turn it on so I can just have prayer wash over me. So even if you can't jump in and pray, you know, just turn off the screen and just listen to the prayers of the church. It's a beautiful and powerful thing. So please join us for that. Acts chapter 22, we're continuing back in our sermon series in the book of Acts. Now, as many of you know, we are currently in the thick of football season, all right? And Chicago is a big football city, and our claim to fame is the 1985 Bears that won the Super Bowl, who is known for their defense that just crushed everyone, that the Bears are nicknamed the Monsters of the Midway because we are monsters on defense. Now, this is where some football scholars might say, that's right, defenses win games. And any of other scholars say, no, it's the best defense is a good offense, okay, right? You, 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 know, you get scholars talking about stuff like that. When in reality, you actually need both to win games. Now, where am I going with this, okay? The same can be said of the Christian faith. Christ followers must be good on offense that we need to go. We need to initiate conversations. We need to step out of our comfort zones, but we also must be good on defense. You know, 1 Peter chapter three says this. Let me show it to you. It says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that, that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, defense for the Christian faith isn't always about addressing critiques or debating other folks about the faith. Many times, what it means to defend the Christian faith is simply to answer the why. The why. That as you're living a compelling and countercultural life, people will ask, why? Why are you a Christian? Why do you do that? Why don't you do that? Like, what's going on with you? For example, here at the South Loop, when you're volunteering at Bread of Life in downtown, people walk by and you're like, why? Why? Well, because Jesus is the bread of life. When some of the families here step up into the adoption fund and you're adopting other kids, neighbors, your family members are going to ask, why? Well, it's because Jesus has adopted me. When you're out there at UIC or IIT sharing the gospel with other folks, when some folks here are heading off to missions, people are going to be asking, why? Why? It's because Jesus loves me. Right? People are going to ask you why. As a believer, if you're living a God-honoring life, you have to be ready to answer the why. And as we'll see in our verses today, one of the best ways to do it is by sharing your story, your story. Now, where we land in the book of Acts today is that Paul is now on the defense. Now, prior to this, Paul has been on the offense. He's been traveling city to city on three missionary journeys, sharing the gospel. But now we see Paul become a prisoner. And for pretty much the rest of the book of Acts, Paul's going to be in chains, defending the Christian faith. That from Acts chapter 21 to 26, Paul will give five defense speeches. And let me just show it to you here that he gives his defense before the Jewish crowd in Jerusalem, before the Supreme Jewish Council in Jerusalem, Felix to Festus and then to King Herod Agrippa and Caesarea. Now, for our time today, we're going to look at Acts chapter 22 here. Now, some context here. At the end of Acts 21, 
Paul is now finally in Jerusalem as he planned. And word is spreading across the city that he's back. But there are two slanderous lies that are being told about him. Acts chapter 21, verse 28 here. It says, men of Israel, help. Now this is the slander. This is the man, Paul, who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Okay, so first slander. The Jews are saying that Paul is teaching that the law of Moses is obsolete. That is a lie. That is wrong. Paul never said that. As a matter of fact, Paul said that the law is so important and so hard to obey that Christ had to fulfill it. Secondly, they also say that Paul brought a Greek or a Gentile into the temple courts, which was an act punishable by death. Now, Gentile was basically a word the Jewish people used to describe everyone who wasn't Jewish, which would be many of us here. It was a very ethnocentric word. But there is no proof that Paul brought a Gentile into the temple, but the Jewish crowds, they believe this and they lose their mind. They drag Paul out of the temple and they start beating him. And a Roman tribune has to come in, who is a commander of an army of a thousand people. They come in, literally hoist Paul over their shoulders to save him from the mob. And it's in that moment, Paul's like, can I please speak to the crowd? Can I please speak to them? Chapter 22, verse 1. Brothers and fathers, as he's speaking to the crowd, hear the defense that I now make before you. So Paul is being accused being slandered. People are casting doubt on the Christian faith. So Paul defends it by sharing how Christ changed his life. Now, in church language, we call that a testimony. And for all of us who are Christ followers, we have a story to share. That's what the gospel means. It means good news. It means salvation has come, that Jesus has saved me, and he can save you. And this is a news that can't stay with us. It has to be passed on to a starving and hurting world. But here's the problem. We don't like sharing. Let's just call it what it is. We don't like sharing. Now, for some of us, we don't like sharing because we're selfish. Now, I have four boys, and they hate sharing. They like to keep the toys all to themselves, that all they care about is their happiness and not the happiness of their brothers. In the same way, I love that Jesus saved me. I love how happy he makes me. I love how he fulfills my life. But that's as far as it goes. You know, another reason we don't share is because we think that, you know what, Oh, my story is just just so boring. You know, no no one's going to want to hear it. Can I just say, Satan would love us to believe that our story doesn't matter because it will keep your mouth shut. Now, Now, let me just say, your story might not connect with everyone everywhere, but your story will connect with someone somewhere. That was a good one, right? I worked hard on that one, okay? Your story matters because it's God's story working through your life. So Paul here, in defense of the Christian faith, shares his story. And what we're going to see here is that if you want your story to be a strong defense of the gospel, here are the three elements that we see from Paul sharing. Let me just show it to you. Here are the three elements. First is this. 
You need to be real about your past. You need to be real about your past, your life before Christ. Second, you need to be clear about Christ, what Christ did in your life. And then finally, you need to share even when it's difficult. You need to share even when it's difficult where Christ is calling you. Okay, so here are the three elements we're going to see. So first is this. We need to be real about our past. This is our life before Christ. So back to chapter 22, verse 1 here. Uh, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cecilisa, Cecilisa, and brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamilia, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Okay, so Paul starts off by saying, folks, you need to understand, I can't be any more Jewish. He says that he was educated at the feet of Gamilia, and everyone who was Jewish knew who this revered teacher was. As a matter of fact, Gamilia was, not, was only one of six teachers throughout Jewish history to have the title rabbin, not rabbi, rabbin, which means master. That he's not just a teacher, he's our master. Paul received this teaching from a great master. He was the Pharisee of all Pharisee. So Paul's establishing, I can't be any more Jewish than I am right now. In addition, he says, I was zealous for God just like you. Well, Paul, how zealous were you? Verse 4, I persecuted this way. Now, this was a name that was given to Christians because they followed Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. That, That was a nickname that was given to them. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as a high priest and the whole council of elders can bear witness From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and to bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul is saying that I was so jealous for the Christian faith that I hunted down Christians. And I arrested them, threw them in jail, and even executed them. This is how strongly I felt that I was right and they were wrong. This is how much I loved the law of Moses. I killed people for it. Now, Paul here was not a raging madman. No, 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 he wasn't. He was very sincere about his beliefs about God. He was obedient to his understanding of Scripture But he was sincerely wrong. Sincerely wrong. He owns it before the Jewish crowds that through his persecution of Christians, he knew that he was actually fighting against God. That is how spiritually lost he was. That he said that he believed in God, but he did not believe in the Son of God. Now, what makes Paul's story a strong defense for the Christian faith? It's because he gets real with them. That he doesn't speak from an ivory tower, but from one who shared the very same struggles and hatred in their own heart. That this is the same Paul who considered himself the chief of all sinners. Now, was Paul really that sinful of a person? I don't think so. 
But when Paul saw himself in light of God's holiness, his sin was undeniable. Now for all of us here in this room, we have a past. That if you call yourself a Christ follower, you have a life before Christ. So the question for you is, will you share it? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to be real about it? Now, there's a couple of challenges to sharing our past. First is this. A a challenge about sharing our past that we face is because we don't see a difference between our old life and new life because we're still the same person. This is why some people can't talk about who they were because they're still that same person. Who they was is who they is. And this should not be. Because when someone encounters the risen Christ, they must be born again. They are a new creation with a new heart and a new mind. There should be a clear line between who you once were to who you are today. Now, I'm not saying that this always happens right away. Sometimes we hear those testimonies where it's a dramatic conversion. It happens right away. For some of us, it happened over a very long period of time, over many years, and that is all good. But you should still be able able to see a difference over a span of that life of how God is changing you. Let me ask you, is there a difference between who you was and who you is? Do you actually have something to share about that is distinct and different? You know, another challenge in sharing our past is that sometimes it does feel a little too shameful. There's just some things, man, you're just like, man, I don't want to bring that up again. Like, like, I've worked so hard to kind of put it away. I don't want to bring it up again. And sharing this might really hurt my reputation. That I've been a Christian for such a long time. I've worked really hard to put my life together. And I don't want people to look at me and say in small group, whoa, you did that? Whoa, that happened to you? No way. You? You? So we hide it. Or we gloss over the, our past. You know, the issue with this is that when we begin to hide or minimize our sins, we are minimizing our need for a Savior. And this will not give hope to others. It's only when we are real with our sin, we are able to show off the amazing mercy of God. That scripture says that we're all messed up, that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that our best deeds are but filthy rags, that no one seeks after God, not a single person. Scripture exposes us, so there is nothing to hide. There is no fooling anybody. So if we want to effectively reach unbelievers, one of the most powerful ways to do it isn't always by showing just how righteous or how self-righteous we are, but it's by showing how God-dependent we are. Don't hide your past. God wants to use your past to reach the people in the present so that they would walk with him in the future. This is how Paul starts his story. He is real with them. I killed Christians, and I was wrong. I was wrong. Here's the second element to how our story can be a strong defense for the Christian faith. Be clear about Christ. Share what Christ has done in your life, okay? Chapter 2, verse 6 here. As I was on my way. Okay, let me just point those words out here. Paul was doing his thing. 
Okay, he was walking his path. He was doing what he wanted to do. And this is the truth of the gospel, that when Christ encounters you, when he encounters you, you are always on your way doing what you want to do. You are not walking towards him. You are walking away from him, all right? So as I was walking, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, Paul here must have been in shock because Paul thought that Jesus was dead. He thought that he was a fraud, but here is Jesus in all his glory. And Jesus says, you are persecuting me. Why are you doing this? That Paul is now realizing that as he was going on his way, he was fighting against God himself. Verse 9. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Verse 12. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be my witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name, Jesus. So we see here that Jesus meets Paul where he's at, humbles him, changes him to who he needs to be. And in the same way, let me just say that God loves us and meets us exactly where we are at, but he also loves us too much to leave us there. Now, what makes Paul's story a powerful defense of the Christian faith is that he is clear about who saved him. That is Jesus. That Jesus is the one who called him. That Jesus is the one who humbled him. And in addition, Paul says in verse 16 that he was baptized. Now, Christian baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. It's a symbolic act. Now, baptisms don't save you. Water baptisms do not save you, but it does show publicly to others that I trust Jesus to wash over my sins. Now, for Paul to be baptized, this would have been shocking for the Jewish crowds. Why? Because Jews did not get baptized. Gentiles, non-Jewish people who wanted to convert to Judaism, they got baptized. And the Jewish people rightly understood the practice of baptism, that it was a cleansing so that you would be acceptable to God. And only Gentiles need to be baptized because they were unclean. They never followed the law. But if you were a Jew, you were born into the people of God. You were born into the law. You were born into the traditions. You you didn't need to be baptized. So when Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisee, a Jew of the Jews, gets baptized, 
He is telling the Jewish crowds that I, Paul, a Jew just like you, I am just as unclean and as defiled as a pagan. And I need Jesus to wash away my sins. Paul's clear in his story. He is not the hero. Jesus is the hero of his story. We too must be clear about Jesus in our story because if we're not, any transformation that people see from our, from our lives, any good and loving deeds that we do will only look like to them from the outside eyes, oh, they must be a really disciplined person. Oh, they must be a naturally good person. Not to be clear about Jesus will actually push people away from Jesus because they will think through our example that they can have all the fruits of having Jesus, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, they, they can have all of it without Jesus because we don't see a single thing. Our good moral example will actually hinder people from knowing Jesus if we stay a silent witness. We got to point to Jesus. We got to give Jesus all the credit for the change in our life. If we want to see people be changed, it's not going to come from the power of my moral example. It's, not, it's only going to come through the power of the cross. That is the only thing that can change lives, change our city, change our nation, and change our world. You know, now, a tool I've shared with you guys before on how I engage with my one, that one person whom God loves but is far away from God, the, the way that I do this is that I always seek to do one of these five things to bless them. And let me just show it to you. And it's really easy to remember because it spells the word bless, okay? So how can we go ahead and engage our unbelieving friends, those who are spiritually lost? You do it by blessing them. You do these five things. First, B, Begin with prayer. Pray, pray for them. Pray for them. Pray with them. L, listen to them. Talk with them. Ask good questions. Get to know their story. E, eat with them. Spend time over a dinner table. Build that relationship. S, serve them. Meet a tangible need within their life that as they're sharing their story, step into those issues. And then the final S, share your story. Now, I've shared this in my church numerous times at Bridgeport, and can I just say that as a church, we are really good, and I imagine that's true in here, we are really good with the first four. We knock that sucker out all the time, but too often, we neglect the final S. Can I just remind you that we can't spell the word bless with only one S. It always needs two S's. So when you share your story, can I just encourage you, be clear about Jesus. Many of you are doing some really good things. Some of you are really good workers, really good managers, really good friends. You're doing a, such a fantastic job. They see it. Your non-believing friends and coworkers and students, they see it. Now just connect the dots and say, this isn't because of me. It's because of Jesus. Let them know that he is the hero of your story. Finally, if you want your story to be a powerful witness of the Christian faith, share where Christ is calling you. Share even when it's difficult. Verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. 
And I said, Lord, they themselves know that, that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Okay, so Paul here is sharing his story. He's getting real about his past. He's being clear about Jesus. And up until this point, the crowds are listening to him intently but then he gets to one word, and everything goes sideways. Verse 21, and Jesus said to Paul, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to, them, to him. And then they started shouting with their voices, away with this fellow, for he should not be allowed to live. In other words, kill this person. Up till that word, Gentiles. The Jewish crowds detested the Gentiles. Why? Once again, it's because they saw them as inferior, that they didn't follow the law, that they were unclean, that they were sinners. And the Jewish crowds, they get all worked up here because Paul is basically saying to them that you need to know that God has put a calling in my life to tell them about, Jew, about Jesus, our Messiah, the anointed one. That's what I've been called to do. And if they are to believe in Jesus, they don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow the law of Moses. They don't need to be culturally Jewish first. Anyone can be saved and be in God's presence when they trust in Jesus alone, and the Jews could not handle it. How dare you put us in the same place as these pagans? How do you dare call us the same as them? We read later on that these Jews just tear their clothes, and they cry out in rage against Paul. They just could not handle that. Now, what do we learn from this? God will sometimes call us to share even when it's difficult, particularly from this example, God needs us to repent of our prejudices, that we need to repent of those things. That when Paul says that Jesus has called him to the Gentiles to share the good news of the Messiah, we have to recognize this is not a new calling. This has been part of God's plan from the very beginning. As a matter of fact, the very reason God chose the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people, Israel, to be his people is so that they would be a blessing to the nations, to the Gentiles. God tells this to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Let me show it to you. Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. And I will make you, talking to Abraham, a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you, I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So far, this sounds great. God, bless me, bless me, bless me, I want it. Last phrase. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I will bless you to bless them. Jewish people, you have the story of God's love and you need to pass it on to others. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6. God says that my plan of redemption is so much bigger than just restoring the tribes of Israel. Redemption will be for the world. Isaiah chapter 49. God says, it is too light a thing 
that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And finally, as Jesus ascends to heaven, he, great, he gives the great commission. And what was it? And Rafe says it at the end of service every single time. Go and make disciples of all nations. Do you see? The mission to share the story of God with the Gentiles was not unique to Paul. It was a mission that started with the Jewish people, but because of their prejudice, it kept them from sharing God's love with others. The Gentiles have always been a stopping point for the Jews. You guys remember Jonah? He runs the opposite way of God's calling to preach to the Gentiles, that he would rather be thrown off a boat and commit suicide than turn around and go to Nineveh. And when Jonah finally has a chance to go to Nineveh to make things right, he gives the worst sermon known to man. It's only eight words and he mumbles the word, but the whole city repents and he wants to die because he can't handle it. Or we have another example when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan answering the question, who is really your neighbor? So Jesus shares the story of how a man is robbed and, and, and dead on the road, but you have a priest who passes by, you have a Levite who passes by, but then you have a Samaritan man who stops everything and takes care of this hurting man. And Jesus asks this Jewish lawyer, who's the neighbor? The lawyer can't even mention the name. He just says, the third one, the third one. God's love is to be shared, but the Jews won't do it. In the same way, we don't share because sometimes it's too difficult. They may be just like the Jews. We've drawn circles around us in how far we're willing to go to love others. Yes, God, I love you. Yes, please bless my family. Yes, please reach my family and friends. That's your circle. But man, there are just some people I really don't like. There's some people who have really hurt me. There are some people that I really disagree with politically. There are some people who have betrayed me or broken my heart. A boss or a coworker or a neighbor who's treated me wrong or have crossed me or, or, or disrespected me. Maybe it's a race or maybe it's a religious group. Whoever they might be, there are people that you have left outside of your circle. And Jesus is calling us past our prejudices. He's calling us past our discomforts. He is calling us to love our enemies. Why? It's because Jesus did it for us. That when it came to rescuing us from sin, there was no stopping points for Jesus. There were no limits. He gave all of his blood to save us. If we want our story to be a good defense for the Christian faith, we must share it even when it's hard and with hard people because it shows the extent of God's love. Frankly, it's easy to love those who are easy to love. The world does it all the time. Scripture talks about that. What is hard is loving difficult people. And the reality is that most times we are that difficult person. But this is the good news. The only people Jesus loves are hard and difficult people because all of us have rebelled against him. That none of us are born into this world on team Jesus. We are born enemies of God. So when God loves each and every single one of us, it is a radical love. God calls us to love in the same way. 
but we cannot do this on our own. We need to ask for God's grace so that we can push past our limits. We need his grace so that we don't run away or avoid. It's when the spirit empowers us, we can love just like our savior because we will not have a love that is natural, but a love that is supernatural. And that's when people will begin to ask, why? Why are you loving like that? Why? You know, when I was first introduced to the Christian faith, uh, it was through a youth group. And the first day that I went to youth group, I was difficult, okay? I was a kid that was sat in the back. My arms were folded, you know. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I had a scowl on my face, you know. I had black clothes. I was super emo, you know what I mean? Like, I was a wannabe gangbanger. Like, I was this guy, like, in the back, back corner. It's like, yeah, this is who I am, you know. And this was basically my way of telling everyone that was there, like, you know, I'm too cool for school. If I want to leave, I can leave any time I want. But really, all it was was just walls protecting my insecurities, but yet, even though I was so difficult, so hard, so mean, so cold, throughout the night, people kept saying hi to me. By the end of that night, people got into a circle, and that's when they introduced newcomers. And the youth leader said, hey, everyone, I just want you to know that this is Kenson over here, and this is his first time. And everyone was, yay, glad to have you, Kenson. When my dad picked me up that night and said, hey, how, how did church go tonight? The first thing I said to them, to him, was that they clapped for me. That was the very first time, very first time in my life that anyone has ever acknowledged me in that way. And can I tell you what I was thinking the rest of the week? Why? 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 Why would they care about me? And it was one year later that God opened up my heart and showed me that it was all because of Jesus. You know, at the end of Paul's testimony, he's no longer going his way. He's going the way of Jesus. Paul had no limits. Jesus had no limits. May we, South Loop, have no limits. Let's proclaim the gospel to all people until there is no place left because we have a story to tell. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's bow our heads.